So it's very appropriate this morning that Pastor Chris in Psalm chapter 37 kind of ended on uh, that note of blessing for those who take refuge in the Lord, because tonight we're going to talk about cities of refuge as we continue in our study of the book of Joshua. And if you haven't been with us, um, or you just forgot, because I do too, <laughs> what we're talking about the past few weeks, uh, we've been, uh, we're, we're after the part of Joshua where the Israelites have come in and conquered the land. They suffered some defeats and setbacks, but for the most part, they were able to subdue the land, although, as we've said multiple times, they weren't able to completely wipe out the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the, the other ites from the land, and we saw that how that would create problems. But for now, the land is split up into 12 different portions, or, well, 11, um, but uh, the Levites get their own thing. We'll talk about that later. Don't mean to go back and preach all those sermons again. But we come to an interesting uh, aspect of the partitioning of the land as it comes to what are called cities of refuge. And this would end up being three cities spaced out in Israel, three to the east of the Jordan, because remember, some of the tribes ended up settling there, and then three to the west of the Jordan, and you can see that on your map. And they're sort of evenly spaced out such that anyone could access these cities of refuge. So, I'm going to read the passage. It's a short chapter, so I'll go ahead and read this one with not too many tough names, and then we'll kind of jump into the, um, the study of the text. Joshua chapter 20. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and she so that's in the north, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, that's sort of in the center, um, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, that's in the south. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Okay, so... Uh, we're basically going to discuss manslaughter, or what we might call manslaughter, uh, and murder, and uh, what these uh, cities of refuge were supposed to offer in terms of uh, mercy for, for those who had committed such acts. But first, we want to establish the seriousness of shedding blood. In other words, there's a premise here that it is wrong to shed blood or something is happening when you shed blood that is not supposed to be happening of another person. Um, technically, the word homicide, which I might use, um, is neutral. It is simply referring to a person killing another person. Homicide is simply the, per 
uh, a person killing another person it is neutral in terms of fault or even morality. So usually we have here the term homicide and we think murder immediately, but that's not necessarily the case. So one of the saddest series of events in the Bible occurs at the very beginning. Um, and I'm not referring to the fall of Adam and Eve, but, but just by the very fact that right after Genesis 3, which does contain the fall of Adam and Eve, the temptation by Satan and all that, and the consequences, one of the first recorded histories of humanity after the fall is the story, the very famous or infamous, depending how you look at it, story of Cain and Abel. And this is not a positive story of brothers who stick it out through uh, good times and bad. This is the story of jealousy. This is the story of, of anger and hatred and eventually murder. Um, and most of you know the story that Cain was very jealous of his brother Abel. Um, and as they offered their sacrifices, it seemed that uh, the Lord accepted Abel's but not Cain's sacrifice. And Cain, seeing this, uh, got very, very upset. He lured his brother into a field and he killed him. And we'll just pick up uh, in verse uh, 9. Then Yahweh said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And Yahweh said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So you have here uh, what we might consider the first murder. Um, even though um, <laughs> we, we have to understand a, a few things here. You might think, like, the only people on the face of the planet right now, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, you've just deleted 25% of the world's population by killing, you know, your brother. Like, how, how could you get that? Well, you have to understand, I know it says there in the course of time, um, in verse um, 3, in the course of time, came brought uh, to Yahweh an offering. Um, really, you have to imagine that at this point, it's possible that even hundreds of years have passed, all right? And so uh, Adam and Eve have borne many other children besides Cain and Abel. We're just focusing on them. But we're talking about the very beginning of humanity. You start with Two, and so you got to go with a, a multiplied effect of how many generations it might take to have actually lots of people. Because there's an implication later in the, in the discussion that Cain has with the Lord that there's a lot of people on the face of the planet at this point, right? So um, there, uh, there's probably been generations and generations, hundreds and hundreds of, of years have passed, enough for people to find wives, uh, get married, have their own kids. Yes, they're all related, but this is... Uh, different circumstance. We're talking about the very beginning, again, of humanity. Um, so there is a world that has been populated, you know, or been populating for a time. And while the text doesn't say that this is the first murder, you kind of get the implication that this is the first murder. So up until this point, um, you don't have a, a scenario just yet where it would even, you know, come upon a person, I suppose, to think about doing this, because after all, it's, all of it is what we call fratricide, killing your brother, your sister, or something. So it's just a unique scenario. This is uh, most likely the first murder. There has been a, a people from Adam and Eve flourishing, yes, sinning, but not this kind of sin. 
So God punishes him. He doesn't kill him, though. He doesn't say blood for blood, eye for eye, life for life, you're, you're done, I'm going to kill you. But much like his parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, he gives grace, uh, and he, he simply curses him to be a fugitive and a wanderer. And so Cain says to Yahweh, in verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then Yahweh said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, again, there's a little, I'm, I'm interpreting this a little bit or reading between the, the spaces there. Because again, it doesn't say this is the first murder. But what he's done is so heinous that Cain imagines that if anyone hears that you killed one of, you know, one of, one of us, another person, that they would want to kill him. And so God has to uh, make a provision, a special provision, that no one could take this kind of vengeance for this deliberate act of murder, and he protects him. There's a different dynamic that's, in other words, a different dynamic. There's seriousness in that Cain has shed blood. It has cursed the ground, and that's a theme that, that comes up. I mean, you go all over the place with this, but he curses the ground with his blood, so to speak, uh, or the shedding of his brother's blood. But there is um, a sense in which you could not um, take vengeance for yourself. It's a very peculiar, actually, kind of thing when you think about the rest of what we're going to say, because uh, uh, after Genesis 9, we'll get there, um, if anyone sheds the blood of another person, you do not kill, uh, you do kill them. There's capital punishment, in other words. But at this point, there's not. There's a sense of, of mercy, perhaps. There's a sense in which God is trying to do um, what he can to preserve, all right, humanity. What happens in Genesis 6? So you have all the descendants in Genesis chapter 5. What happens in Genesis 6? Um, very famous verse, verse 5, Genesis 6, 5. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, I have to imagine that this would include murderous thoughts. It doesn't say that people were murdering each other. Um, again, reading, this is reading a little bit between lines. It doesn't say what kind of stuff they were doing. It just says that Every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was wicked, but it doesn't describe, uh, except in a general sense, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So I imagine at least two scenarios. One scenario is that despite Yahweh's warnings that no one should take vengeance for murder with capital punishment, perhaps people were doing that, or perhaps it was just the case you had a bunch of people who were so evil, they wanted to kill each other, but they sort of feared God, um, God's uh, uh, judgment that he gave to Cain, right? Because Cain ends up elaborating on a little bit. Um, but the idea that no one should repay murder with killing, maybe that stuck with them, and they didn't, but they just hated each other. But even if they didn't actually do it, it was in their heart, and they just wanted to, they wanted to do it. Or perhaps the wickedness referring to there is that they just did. They didn't, they didn't care about God's um, 
warning to anyone to take, you know, kind of justice into their own hands and kill another person. Whatever the case is, God knows the heart, and he, seven, eight, nine, he brings the flood, Noah's flood, to wipe them all out, right? There's seriousness to their sin, the consequences of sin, except for Noah, his wife, his three kids, their wives, is the complete wiping out of life, of anything that has a, the breath of life uh, in them. And so the world is subdued in that sense. And then you come to Genesis 9. I know we're kind of going there the long way. just wanted to show you how the story develops. Uh, Genesis 9. Um, we can start in verse 4. Um, you shall not, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for you, or, and for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So this command to punish murder or the killing of a person unjustly is to shed that person's blood because they have sinned against the man made in the image of God. This command was not given, you know, Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, or anywhere else. It's given after the flood. Um, So it sounds like, to me, there must have been a difference somehow in how God was going to deal or wanted people to deal with this. Before, maybe it was God telling them, Don't do it. Don't avenge even murder with capital punishment. But that failed, (laughs) right? Um, That didn't work. One way or the other, it did not work because every, you know, the wickedness was great on the earth. Every intention of thoughts of the heart of man was only evil continually. So now he says, he does say that the new paradigm is if anyone does shed, there is a sense of like justice now, community justice now. If someone sheds the blood of another man, his blood shall be shed. Because you have killed someone made in the image of God. And by extension, verse 7 saying that you may be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly. It is supposed to be, uh, this kind of law is supposed to be in support of people going out increasing and multiplying. In other words, yeah, maybe I won't go out killing and murdering people if that means I'm going to die. So there's a sense in which this is a kindness to mitigate um, mitigate. Uh, the proliferation of murder on the planet. Again, maybe that's what was happening before the, uh, the flood. So there's seriousness to shedding blood, and this seriousness um, that they did not take seriously before the flood, after the flood, God is essentially saying, I'm going to allow you to take these matters into your hands. When someone sheds blood, you are allowed to shed their blood. Does that, do you guys kind of get what's happening here, the story? So, you, you know, I was come into this thinking, like, why, why, why didn't he give this command before the flood? Like, why not give a, hey, right, right after Cain and Abel, even? Like, why not say this? But um, I think there was kind of an unfolding of revelation here, is that God did give a command to not do this. The deterrence to killing another person is that there was a curse for it, um, and that you, you will be furthermore more cursed if you killed someone that murdered someone. So that should have shut down the whole operation. Um, It sounds like that's what we're supposed to see, but that didn't work. It didn't stop people from still having murderous intent in their heart. So second now, when it comes to 
uh, the people of Israel and what we see in Joshua 20, God had actually made multiple commandments to the Israelites regarding uh, both manslaughter and murder. Most famously, what is the sixth commandment? You shall not kill. Um, Now, depending on your translation, it may say you shall not kill or you shall not murder. So there is a question, what is the distinction between killing or homicide, let's say, and murder? Well, as I said before, the term homicide, it's a neutral one. At least in the English language, it is a neutral term for the act of one person killing another. And unfortunately, one of the sorrows of living in a sin-cursed world is that a person can cause the killing of another person and it not be sinful. And this is what we call a manslaughter um, in, uh, in our kind of uh, parlance. Or the way that Joshua describes it in Joshua 20 is if someone um, strikes a person without intent or unknowingly. So those are the two kinds of circumstances in which it is not the kind of murder that warrants Genesis 9-6. So what does it mean without intent? Intent, it means like it was unintentional, um, but perhaps the circumstances were related to you such that you didn't foresee that it would result in death. You didn't expect it to, but by your involvement somehow, um, it created a situation where someone died. It wasn't your intent to do it, but you were involved in it in some way that if you hadn't done anything or you weren't involved, it wouldn't have happened, all right? Unknowingly, um, (laughs) that would be like, um, you couldn't, you didn't really foresee that the course of actions that you were on could produce that outcome. Let's give an example. There's a biblical example in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Next time you're out chopping wood with your buddy, you keep this one in mind. Deuteronomy chapter 19, 4 through 6. Now this is Moses, when it says that, you know, he established the cities as Moses commanded. This is what we're talking about in Deuteronomy uh, 19. Moses is reiterating actually what Joshua is now fulfilling, 19.4. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the the head slips from the handle, strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. So this is something where um, it was not intentional. He didn't go out there with the intent to kill his friend, just like Cain, or as opposed to Cain going out there fully with the intent to kill his brother uh, Abel. This is a situation where there was no intent. Now, there is, you know, you could say, well, maybe you should have been more careful. Maybe the guy could have checked whether the head of his axe was on tight or not. Maybe he should have said, you know, buddy, don't stand over there. It's a little bit dangerous. Go stand behind me. There's all kinds of things, but that's what makes it, um, that, that's what makes it involved but not intentional. The person was involved in it somehow. And perhaps there are some things he could have done differently um, to to keep that situation from happening, but a normal circumstance is not that you would expect someone is going to die when I swing this axe. 
It's interesting here, it doesn't um, mention the thing about uh, it being unknowing. Um, but that, I mean, that's like, it, it's somewhat the same. The bottom line is there's not an intent of the person in doing what they did or not doing what they did to cause the death of someone. Um, in courts now, in the American justice system, we have what's called involuntary manslaughter and voluntary manslaughter. Now, frankly, involuntary manslaughter is what the Bible's talking about. And it's a, a kind of a classic example there with the axe. That's involuntary manslaughter. Um, reckless behavior can sometimes be considered involuntary manslaughter because you were engaging in reckless behavior that you did not intend to cause the death of someone, nor did you think that that's what was going to be uh, happening. You're roughhousing, you know, somewhere, um, and uh, you, you accidentally knocked your buddy and he hits his head the wrong way. Now, you're just horsing around. You're being reckless, yes. You shouldn't have been horsing around, but it's not like you're doing that with the intent to kill your friend. It just... Um, you're, you're being reckless. Voluntary manslaughter, honestly, it's just murder. But the person has been provoked to some extreme emotional state. It's very, very subjective. So when you hear like the heat of a passion moment, like uh, you, know, you walk in, you catch someone um, doing something horrible to you know, um, your kid or walk in and you know, cheating spouse or something, and you kill the person because you're just so enraged, Sometimes that would be considered voluntary manslaughter, but I'll be honest with you. The Bible doesn't really give that as a pass. It's basically not like an insanity plea, but any other peace person, any other reasonable person in that situation would also have been enraged and emotionally compromised to the point of lacking self-control, and so they were justified in killing. Even if they really wanted to hurt the person, it would be voluntary manslaughter because the emotions were such, so extreme. But the Bible actually doesn't talk about situations like that. So I, I tend to think that's not a good um, a, a legal category to have. The Bible tends to say, like, no matter what's happening, you know, you, you ought to be in control. You're culpable, responsible for your actions. Anyway, involuntary manslaughter is, by and large, the, the, the bigger category of manslaughter. And that's what is uh, talking about here. And unfortunately, innocent, cursed world, uh, that's something that's, that's possible. It wouldn't happen if there wasn't sin in the world, but because... There is this sort of thing is possible. What is murder then? Because obviously this is not a provision that's being made for murder. Well, murder is the planned intentional desire and execution of killing someone. Now, in many Western nations, it would still be murder. If I was planning to murder Ted but killed Reggie instead, that would still be murder. It's not that they say, oh, see, you, you didn't intend to kill the guy you were actually trying to kill. You actually like Reggie, but, you know, but you accidentally killed him. So that's, that's manslaughter, you know, because you didn't mean to do it. No, if you're even angry with Ted and you're trying to, you know, punch his lights out and Reggie stops in, you know, and takes the blow and he dies, it would still be murder. You'd, I mean, maybe you could plea it down, but that's what they're going to try. It, you, you could definitely make a case um, that it would still be murder. Um, and actually, Western nations, if you're in the middle of committing an e illegal act, like a felony level or a very dangerous criminal act, and you end up killing someone, even involuntarily, that could still be considered murder because you are committing a criminal act that shows you do not care about people made in the image of God. That's used biblical language. They wouldn't do that, but you're showing a disregard for life and a ill intent 
or intent with malice. So, for example, if you steal a car, you get in a high-speed car chase, and you cause someone to die. You know, they are, they're trying to avoid you, right? And they end up flipping their car and they die. Or if you hit another person in the course of that, normally that'd be, if, you're, if you just lost control of your vehicle, you're being a little reckless or speeding, and you hit someone, that'd be involuntary manslaughter typically. But if you're in the middle of this very, like, criminal, dangerous act, you could still get hit with murder because in your heart, when you're doing that, is you're not caring about the safety of others. You're, 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 you're not, um, you still have an ill or uh, a malice intent. So um, the Bible would seem to affirm that sense of murder, where it's a heart issue primarily and first. Now, I'm just, there's all kinds of other kinds of homicide. You can talk about self-defense. You can talk about uh, times of war. Uh, we won't quite get into all of those things, but understand there's other categories of of homicide. Technically, war is like legal, legal killing, right? War is, wartime is legal killing. And they don't actually care whether you hate the person you're at war with or not. No, one, no one's going to check for that. It's still, in a sense, legal. Like, if, if, if you hate the enemy genuinely, you could still be a soldier. They don't say, no, no, no. Now you're murdering. You're not actually soldiering. They don't care. It's kind of a sanctioned um, it can be sanctioned killing, can be sanctioned murder. War crimes then um, sometimes are hard to define because you're in a state where some kinds of killing is legal and some are not. So you, you can't use certain weapons and yeah, you can't do certain activities if they're, non, you know, if they're not, if they've surrendered, you can't do certain things. Anyway, um, but those are all things also the Bible does uh, roughly cover, but capital punishment is a form of homicide. Um, euthanasia, even suicide, and things like that. So there are other categories. Again, today we'll just talk about um, talking about voluntary or involuntary manslaughter. All right, I know there's a lot. I want, <laughs> it's a lot we're kind of covering. It just it's interesting subject um, because we're talking about um, kind of legal issues in the ancient Near East. Now the text here then says that uh, you have these cities of refuge. You see the map there. And if a manslayer who strikes a person without intent or unknowingly, they can flee there and they will be a refuge or they will be a safe in the city as a refuge from the avenger of blood. What's the, or who is the avenger of blood? Well, there's, uh, this is actually a very common practice in the ancient Near East, that culture at that time. Uh, it's essentially a relative, a family member who would seek justice and take on the burden of of blood for blood, just like Genesis 9-6 said, uh, for the murder of that family member. So it's a, it's, that part is not unusual. That was in a lot of the cultures. And again, that's something that's passed on to Noah. And if you believe and take the Bible literally, Noah and his children and their children is where we all came from, right? So they all, every person on the planet is descended from someone who, who heard that command from God, you know, blood... If a, if a man sheds the blood of another man, his blood shall have to uh, be shed. So technically, every culture comes from a people that have heard that. So it's not unusual to think that that's something that is spread out through um, different cultures and societies. What is unique, though, is that the Israelites were um, had these cities of ref- refuge. Um, that is something unique, that there is um, not supposed to just be what we might call vigilante justice um, or a kind of feuding of clans 
uh, fighting each other, and you know one relative gets killed, so they're going to go and kill another relative, and then they go back and forth forever. Um, this is a, a little bit unique here, that at least for those who might accidentally have killed someone, they can find refuge. Now, there's an implication here, though, is that there's, um, there's no lawyers, it sounds like. <laughs> there's, there's no one that's going to take, like, a case up. Like, you literally, if you, you know, you're in the woods and you, you know, swing that axe and, and uh, the head of it comes off and hits your buddy, I mean, your options were, am I going to presume upon the grace of the people to understand it was an accident, or I, do I drop everything and go <laughs> to one of these cities um, you know, and you, you, maybe you're rolling the dice either way, uh, but, it sound, but what you weren't doing was go, going to find a lawyer or some kind of representation or going to the cops or something like that. Um, it, it's, it was a very different culture and time. Um, you know, it's hard to put yourself there. I know as I was reading this, like I'm just so um, um, immersed in our, you know, 20th, 21st century legal cultures, something like that happens, you know, the cops are going to be involved, and you're going to probably have to go down to the police office, Um, you know, you got to wait for your lawyer to show up, and then there's going to be trial and civil proceedings, maybe criminal, and there's, there's a lot of issues that come up, but back then, that, they didn't do that, you could argue which is better, which is worse, for them, it was, well, I mean, uh, I, I can go to the city of refuge and basically have a, um, a, a trial there where I won't have to fear that someone is just going to, you know, kill me. So we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. But just so you know, the Avenger of Blood, it's not, this is not a, this is not a sinful thing to do or be, this Avenger of Blood. It's, it's again, Genesis 9-6. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a way that they dealt with justice at the time. So it was not some, somehow wrong or sinful for them, versus Genesis 4, which, where it sounded like, well, back then it would have been wrong to do it, but something, again, changed after the flood. Um, this, is, this is okay, all right? So there is some sorrow living in this incursed world that people can die accidentally at the hands of another person. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation before. I'm sure that if we're talking to the whole congregation, there was, would probably be at least one person who may have burden on their conscience that they have caused the death of another person inadvertently, accidentally, um, without intent. And one of the points of the idea of the city of refuge is God understands that you live in a sin-cursed world and that these kinds of accidents happen and that you shouldn't have to be killed for something you did not in your heart intend to do. There's something of a kindness here. Um, There's something of a, you know, it really depends on time, but I was going to maybe open the can of worms that is abortion. Um, But, you know, I do think that if, um, I think some women are very deceived when they are young and they are told about what an abortion is. They're lied to about what, you know, the cells are in her body. Um, If she was genuinely unknowing or without ill intent, um, goes through with an abortion and then feels absolutely horrible and horrified, I I think there's something here to say, well, you know, God is merciful to manslayers, to to people who cause the death of of a person without any ill intent and unwitting. Um, 
you know, I, I think that's supposed to be somewhat of a relief and a lifted burden to understand that God is very aware that even something as heinous and horrifying as killing someone made in the image of God is, there can still be uh, a refuge. There can still be safety. Now, it's a different question whether a woman who fully knows exactly what they're doing and knows they're killing a child made in the image of God, what the consequences should be uh, for that as far as legally. But anyway, separate question. Like I said, maybe, maybe I won't open that can of worms later. <laughs> Probably going to run out of time anyway. Um, but that, that is an interesting question. But I do have a lot of sympathy. I mean, it's crazy to think that uh, someone would lie to, like, some teenage girl, some young girl. Like, you know, that's not a baby, right? It's just a clump of cells and so on. And if they don't know any better and if they have been told that their whole lives and they go through it, that I, I think we're allowed to have some pity uh, for that. Versus, again, like, stone cold, just, I know having a baby would ruin my life right now. And so, yeah, I, I know this is my child, but... You know, I gotta, you know, I, I don't want this to impede my career, my education, um, my finances. I, I think that's a different category. So, anyway, um, moving on from there. <laughs> um, oh man, I don't want to bring this up either. Uh, I was gonna. <laughs> well, so you have a, you have an example of King David, right, who commits murder by proxy. You know, he sends. He, well, first of all, he commits adultery, and then he. Um, sends Uriah off to basically be murdered. It's, con- it's counted murder as far as God's concerned, um, but he doesn't face judgment for it, nor does he flee to one of these cities. So what's the deal with David? Save that for another time. <laughs> that, that is, that's another can of worms, but very interesting thing there because essentially he's told his child is going to have to pay the price for his sin. So anyway. But that's something you can maybe look up, we can talk about later. It's, it's not quite in the purview here. But that, that's, this, was a, this was one of those sermons where it's just like you kept getting on tangents. Oh, that's a really interesting thought. Oh, what about this? Oh, man. So I, I'm sorry if I seem a little bit scattered in that. There's a lot of interesting things to uncover in this. I, I have a whole section here on like self-defense and you know, all, all other things. What about soldiers? What about Roman soldiers? So... It's really interesting to get into this, but you don't—you probably don't care. Okay, um, so <laughs> first you, you have, again, the seriousness of shedding blood. And then you have, again, the sorrow of being, of living in a sin-cursed world where people can die. It's, it's an accident. You can cause the death of your, your children. I mean, that's, I, I'm thankful to God every day that I did not do something so dumb or so negligent that I caused the death of my children, because I'm around them all the time. And what does it take? You hear the horror stories on the news. I just think, oh man, that could have been me. So we need to be thankful that God understands these things. He wouldn't want us to be guilt-ridden by these things either. Um, he is a refuge. If there was no intent, he understands this part of living in the sin-cursed world. Um, in any case, so um, there, that's the second point. Third point is there is a sanctuary for for sinners. So you see here that this uh, gentleman, or this woman, I suppose, but um, he flees to the city, he stands at the gates, he explains the situation, and they're supposed to take him in, give him a place, um, and uh, they are to essentially protect him. Um, yeah, we'll do this. Uh, go to Numbers 35. <clears throat> Uh, 
Numbers 35, starting verse 22, talking again about these cities of refuge. Um, just previously, it's talking about the murderer who intentionally, you know, kills someone. Um, that murderer is supposed to be put to death. Um, verse 22, but if he pushed him suddenly without enmity, that is uh, another man to another person, another woman to another person, or hurled anything on him without lying in wait, in other words, premeditated, or used a stone that ca- could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him <coughs> so that he died. <laughs> <coughs> you know, just chucking rocks over a bridge. You know, get these, get these rocks off this bridge. Uh, though he was not his enemy, did not seek his harm. Then the congregation shall judge between the man, the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled. And he shall live in it until the uh, death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. Uh, But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he has fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. These things shall be for a statute and a rule for you throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. <clears throat> so it sounds like the process could come about a, a few certain ways. This one sounds like there's a trial in the city where the accident occurred amongst the people of his people that he fled. So either this is a scenario where he fled the situation, he got to the city of refuge, he pled his case, they said, yeah, that's reasonable. So they, they take him back to the city to say, all right, we've uh, we're, we've discussed this, and uh, we, we think this is manslaughter, avenger of blood. You can't touch him. We're going to take him back to our city of refuge. He's going to live here. And if he takes a step out, you can kill him. But when the high priest dies, we will then send him back to the city. This might also be, I don't know if there's uh, a way. It, it's a little bit confusing because it sounds like there's some kind of a trial in the city that he's in, that he committed the act in. So maybe there's a way to kind of petition for status as um as someone who has committed manslaughter um and then someone in the city of refuge could come it it's a little bit confusing commentators basically just say well it's probably that he fled and they said okay that sounds reasonable we'll we'll allow you to plead that kind of case there and tell him what the situation is and then escort him back and uh, he'd be under the safety of this uh, sanctuary city during that whole time until the death of the high priest uh, and, of course, if he ever left the safety of that city, that's on him. There'd be no guilt if the avenger came and killed him. Now, you might ask, why wait for the death of the high priest? And uh, realize these are Levitical cities. Who are the Levites? Well, they're the ones who served in the worship of God as priests and as other ministers in supporting the, the worship system of Israel. This is the Levites. So some Commentators say that this implies that a person who committed manslaughter, he's obviously going to have to live in the city now. So they're gonna, he's going to pick up um, you know, from these experts of the law, from those who are serving the temple, from those who are performing all the rituals and activities of worship, that he would be expected 
to pick up some of these things, maybe even participate in some of them. He's a part of it, you know, like these cities of refuge are are for kind of a learning experience for him. Involuntary manslaughter is not something um, where you typically just get off scot-free. So you might have to do prison time if you you did uh, involuntary manslaughter. Uh, And so in a way, they're here. They're not incarcerated in the typical sense, but they're there and they participate somehow. I mean, they're going to contribute to the the city in some way. So um, I think there's some merit to the idea that a uh, a manslayer would uh, come and and be a part of, let's say, the Levitical system, at least an observer of it. Um, And then when the high priest dies, it kind of represents, well, your service is over, the high priest has died, and you're free to go back. Some commentators draw a parallel um, of the death of the high priest to the atonement of the sins, representing kind of the atonement of the sins of the manslayer is over. Um, you know, that, that kind of has some, some merit perhaps to it as well. Uh, but either way, you just, you're supposed to notice that his time is tied into the priestly service. Either way, that his fate is tied into the sacrificial system that God had established for the forgiveness of sin. So either way, he is looking to the, the, the sacrificial system of God during that time. That's what he's supposed to be having going through his mind, whether he's waiting for the death of the high priest uh, or whether he is you know, serving or somehow uh, supporting the work of the Levites. Um, he is supposed to be spending a lot of time thinking about you know, the, Lord, the Lord's holiness, um, his righteous standard, the, the sacrifice of, of animals for the atonement of sins. That's what his world would be about. It's just an interesting thought because what if you, you know, what if prisons and incarcerated people were to spend all their time thinking about how God has graciously forgiven them and that, you know, you can honor the Lord wherever you are and they're actually taught, you know, like biblical things. Maybe that would transform some things. Um, I'm not a politician or anything, but, you know, like maybe if they spent some time around the things of God, that might help with the recidivism and all that stuff. But again, don't, don't ask me about policy, <laughs> political policies. Uh, but that was what was happening with this, uh, with this uh, person, the manslayer in the town. Um, and then when the death of the high priest came, they were allowed to go back to his home and his town uh, from which he fled. Another interesting note here in verse 9 of Joshua 29, it says that these were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them. In other words, the sojourner, the non-Israelite, was afforded the same kinds of protections and mercy and grace as Israelites, that this was somewhat of a universal uh, uh, principle of, of God's um, mercy and protection and being a refuge and a safe place for those who've committed involuntary manslaughter. So we are talking about things that are general. They're not just about Israel, but in a way in our hearts, uh, we should also have this kind of um, attitude about God's justice and his mercy. Now, the question is then, after having said all that, what about the New Testament? (laughs) What is what is murder? What is involuntary manslaughter? Is that ever brought up? Well, involuntary manslaughter is not brought up in the New Testament um, very much at all. And I think judging by 
the statement in Joshua 20, verse 9, about how this is for even the stranger sojourning among them, that the idea that there is such a status as involuntary manslaughter is one that we probably generally, even across secular divides, can accept. That there are occasions in which someone causes the death of another person, and it's not due to any ill intent, and therefore the punishments for it should be distinct or different. So I think our default position as Christians is to have the same attitude about involuntary manslaughter as we see in Joshua 20. So that's that. What about murder, though? What's our attitude about murder? John chapter 8, verse 44. John chapter 8, Jesus is uh, confronting, as he often did, um, the Jewish people, the Pharisees, the religious people, They were talking about how Abraham is their father, and yet they're plotting Jesus' death. So he, <laughs> they start to get defensive about it. Um, they're saying that, you know, we're children of Abraham, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and Jesus says, if you're ch- children of Abraham, then you, you would believe me, right? But he says this, John eight forty four: You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So it's quite an indictment for them. And just to fixate on that idea that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, what does that mean? Well, Satan didn't murder Adam and Eve. And Satan didn't murder Abel. But there is a sense in which the the sin that prompted Adam and Eve to do what they did, came to do what, what he did, were all of the same kind and type that Satan committed when he rebelled against God. In other words, there was an attitude in the heart of Satan in rebelling against God's perfect righteousness and his holy standard and wanting to do things my own way, no matter the cost, that that idea itself is a murderous thought. Or as even James will put it, you know, why do you murder each other? And he says, is it not this? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So whereas I don't think there's um, many places where you see Satan deliberately murder someone, even in Job, when it's like uh, attributed to Satan that Job's kids died, it was like a natural disaster. It wasn't like, you know, Satan like stabbing someone or doing anything like deliberate. Um, It's through other agents. So you have to understand when Jesus is saying that, that Satan is a murderer from the beginning, He's saying something that ought to make all of us a little bit afeard. (laughs) Because Satan, as far as I can tell, never pulled a trigger on any human to call him a murderer. But the, the intent to deceive, the intent to covet and envy, those are the things that make one a murderer. Because that's what Satan did. The pride, the arrogance the my way or, or nothing else. That is the heart of murder. So you might, you, you can be very tempted to think, well, I'm not a murderer. I've never murdered anyone in my life. 
I'm a good person, but what is Jesus saying here when he calls Satan a murderer from the beginning? He's not saying that he went out and he's, he's done drive-bys, you know, dropped nukes on people or something. No, he's saying that the intent, the, 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 what makes Satan a murderer is his heart, right? And it's a heart that is probably much more closer to where you're at than what you think of a murderer to be, like, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or some serial killer, right? You think those people are wacky, crazy. I could never do that. That's not what made Satan a murderer. In fact, it just, even here when he does not stand in the truth and he equates him to being the father of lies, you see, that is in a way a murderer's heart to not want to hear the truth, to reject the truth, to want to believe a lie, to want to perpetuate a lie. Those are all things a murderer does. Have you ever done that? <laughs> Maybe. So we don't want to be too quick to say, or, well, I know you guys are good Christians, and you know that it's a heart issue. But, you know, people can oftentimes say, basically, well, I'm not a bad person. I haven't, like, murdered anyone. Well, it's not what made Satan a murderer. That's not what made him a murderer, that he actually went out and killed people. He, he possessed Judas, right? But when did Judas make the deal? Was it before or after Satan entered him? Before Satan entered him, he made the deal, right? Satan entered him, you know, after the, the Last Supper. But he made the deal beforehand. So even then, you can't say that, that oh, you know, Satan made Judas do it, you know. No, Satan had, or Judas had that in his heart even before Satan came to him. He had a murderous intent in his heart even beforehand. And it was maybe just as simple as greed. Not even... I want to kill Jesus. He's a bad guy. I mean, I don't think he thought that. It's, you know, you get, you know, gospels paint a picture that he was, he did it maybe just for the money, which is sort of sad. Maybe he's just dissatisfied in his role. You know, it, it wasn't anything like, like intense anger or hatred. It was something, again, probably that hits a lot closer to home to us. I'm not getting what I want out of this. I thought it was going to be different to be a disciple. Or, man, you know, I'm stealing out of the, the, the coffers here, but there's never any money in it, you know. 30 pieces of silver was all it took, and he did that. He made that deal before Satan even entered him. So I think we have to understand about murder. Another point from the New Testament about murder, from Matthew chapter 5, and this is probably where you thought I was going to go, so we do need to go there. Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Jesus is uh, kind of a turning, turning their, their heads around about what the law says. And in Matthew 5, 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. In other words, being, being killed. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with them to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus, again, clear 
that the intent of the heart is what matters. What makes Satan a murderer, what makes you a murderer is not how many, what your body count is. It is, have you ever been angry with your brother or sister? Have you ever had that that heart that did not want good for them, but instead something bad or evil? I, I, I was... Was it yesterday? Maybe yesterday. Hopefully it wasn't today. <laughs> yesterday or the day before. You know, sometimes I like hearing bad news happening to other people because it makes me feel good that I, that didn't happen to me because they deserve it and I don't. And there's a secret sort of like relishing that you think people are getting what they deserve a little bit or that you're, you must be somehow better. Like, we all know better. I mean, I know everyone in here in this room. We all know better than to think like that, but it's so subtle to almost want to hear bad things <laughs> happening to other people because it makes you feel a little bit better about yourself and where you're at. And you can be a little bit more judgmental. I think that gets so close to this kind of disdain. Like, again, anger is not just the, the, the hot, you know, red face, you know, spit flying out of your mouth. Like, I've seen people that were angry, that were so cool and cold and distant. Anger can look like a lot of things. Disdaining other people doesn't mean you're just on a soapbox and saying, I hate these kind of people, I hate that kind of people. It can be as subtle as, oh yeah, of course that happened to them. They get what they deserve. We gotta be very careful because God is looking at the heart. And you know, we always need to be reminded of that. God's looking at our heart. If we're getting joy, deriving satisfaction at someone else's expense, isn't that a little bit of anger? You know, isn't that a, a little bit of hatred towards a brother? Isn't that a little bit of a, you know, insulting him because you're saying, yeah, I would never do that. <laughs> of course I haven't. I would never do that. Isn't that insulting? You know, it, it's, it's very interesting that he, he even goes to the point of, of, of calling, you know, saying, you fool. You know, and that doesn't seem like anger. And there are times I think the Bible would call someone a fool, and that's obviously not like atheists are foolish, calling atheists fools. That's not a sin here. But the intent even of saying something to someone with the wrong attitude behind it, even if it's true, right? Even if the guy is foolish, could make you liable to the hell of fire. Oh, we just got to look at our hearts because that's where this murderous idea comes from. And it's not always as obvious as the kind of you know, red-hot anger and fury of a road rage incident. Some serial killers were very just, they just kind of disdained human life and saw themselves above it. That's satanic. I mean, that's, that's Satan. But it's not anger. You know, they don't necessarily kill people because of anger, but just something in their heart just says, I think I'm a little better. I don't think I need to, I don't deserve to get caught for this because I, I did it so well or whatever. I mean, I know there's a lot of like uh, serial killer documentaries and things that are popular right now, but you look into the mind of them and it's rarely ever like they're just really angry people. It's not. The most some of those vicious murders. Anyway, the solution is reconciliation. It's not to ignore issues that happen. It's not to ignore how you're feeling about someone, but if you genuinely are having 
a dispute with another person, especially in the context of the body of Christ, to actually seek to make things right, not just brush it aside, not just say, okay, but here you have direct engagement with the person. Figure it out. Sort it out. Get to the bottom of it. It's not just, well, I'll, you know, I'm just going to stop thinking about them or I'm just going to try and stop judging them. That's not the solution here. The solution is you go and you make it, you come to terms quickly. Be reconciled to your brother. Don't let those kinds of situations sit and language and languish. Jesus ultimately is our refuge because we will all find ourselves at some point guilty of these things, even of that murderous heart that Satan has, if it's as simple as thinking of yourself better than others or wanting something that you shouldn't have. Those are things that have led to murder, surely, in which case we all have we all have much to grow in. But thank the Lord that God in his mercy and kindness provides for us not just a refuge city to avoid the avenger of blood, but that God being our refuge not only takes us in, but by faith in Christ makes us children of God, sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus, what those cities of refuge could not do was, um, was change a heart or change a life. It could only preserve. But in Christ, even a murderer could go and find forgiveness and be changed of it. One of the most interesting um, pictures in Exodus 21, um, there's, a, there's a, a, big, a picture painted of a murderer running to the altar of the Lord. Right, and that's that. You could go before there's these cities of refuge. You could go, you know, the temple, and in a way seek refuge in the temple in the presence of God. But if you are a murderer, Exodus twenty one thirteen and fourteen says you rip that guy off of the altar, and you can imagine, you know, he's done something wicked, and you're you're gonna rip him off the altar, and then you execute him for murder, right? There, even like, cause that was something you could not go to the the altar of Moses. And, and find forgiveness and absolution, you could say. But if we go to the cross of Christ, where Jesus died and paid the price for our sins, we can find forgiveness there, where the Son of God and the Lamb of God shed his blood for forgiveness of our sins. It doesn't necessarily mean that you escape earthly justice, but you will, by every means, escape the justice of God by putting your faith in Jesus. So his blood is a better blood. His blood, when he died, it was a pure, innocent uh, blood shed for the account of sinners. And so our refuge is in him. That's something we all uh, can hope for because we all, we all, are just thinking about like, Satan is a murderer from the beginning? Where? <laughs> when? <laughs> I mean, he, he didn't kill anybody, but it was in, in the things that he wanted. It's in the things he, he thought and said that was murderous the things he might have whispered to Cain to kill his brother, the things he told Adam and Eve, whispered in her ear or however he communicated to her, that's where the murder was. Boy, we are all susceptible to that. So we should all be very thankful there's forgiveness offered in Christ. So 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again, just the message, the reminder of your mercy. Um, there's justice, of course. We see that very clearly. There's no sin that you do not uh, make account for. And one of the most grievous is to um, take a life uh, that was made in the image of God, and uh, that's serious. But even that is something that can be forgiven. There was Paul standing watch over Stephen's death, his murder, unjust, killing. And yet Paul could find forgiveness. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are someone who gives not only justice, but mercy, who is not only um, the judge, um, but also the refuge. And we pray, Lord, that in grasping that tension, so to speak, uh, we would find ourselves a, a more just people, yes, standing for righteousness and truth's sake, but also a, a generous, gracious, forgiving people, willing to offer to any and all sinners the glorious good news that they can be right with you through Jesus Christ. So we thank you, Lord, for the little picture we see here in these cities of refuge and ask that you'd bless, um, bless the hearing of your word. We pray you'd bless this time together as we uh, eat and share in fellowship together. Uh, may it be honoring to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.